Section 23 of Rudder Grange. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rudder Grange by Frank R. Stockton. Chapter 12. Lord Edward and the Tree Man. Part 1. It was winter at Rudder Grange. The season was the same at other places, but that fact did not particularly interest Euphemia and myself. It was winter with us, and we were ready for it. That was the great point, and it made us proud to think that we had not been taken unawares, notwithstanding the many things that were to be thought of on a little farm like ours. It is true that we had always been prepared for winter, wherever we had lived, but this was a different case. In other days it did not matter much whether we were ready or not, but now our house, our cow, our poultry, and indeed ourselves, might have suffered. There is no way of finding out exactly how much, if we had not made all possible preparations for the coming of cold weather. But there was a great deal yet to be thought of and planned out, although we were ready for winter. The next thing to think of was spring. We laid out the farm. We decided where we would have wheat, corn, potatoes, and oats. We would have a man by the day to sow and reap. The intermediate processes I thought I could attend to myself. Everything was talked over, ciphered over, and freely discussed by my wife and myself, except one matter, which I planned and worked out alone, doing most of the necessary calculations at the office, so as not to excite Euphemia's curiosity. I had determined to buy a horse. This would be one of the most important events of our married life, and it demanded a great deal of thought, which I gave it. The horse was chosen for me by a friend. He was an excellent beast, the horse, excelling, as my friend told me, in muscle and wit. Nothing better than this could be said about a horse. He was a sorrel animal, quite handsome, gentle enough for Euphemia to drive, and not too high-minded to do a little farm work if necessary. He was exactly the animal I needed. The carriage was not quite such a success. The horse, having cost a good deal more than I expected to pay, I found that I could only afford a second-hand carriage. I bought a good, serviceable vehicle, which would hold four persons, if necessary, and there was room enough to pack all sorts of parcels and baskets. It was with great satisfaction that I contemplated this feature of the carriage, which was rather a rusty-looking affair, although sound and strong enough. The harness was new, and set off the horse admirably. On the afternoon, when my purchases were completed, I did not come home by train. I drove home in my own carriage, drawn by my own horse. The ten miles' drive was over a smooth road, and the sorrel travelled splendidly. If I had been a line of kings a mile long, in all their chariots of state, with gold and silver, and outriders, and music, and banners waving in the wind, I could not have been prouder than when I drew up in front of my house. There was a wagon-gate at one side of the front fence which had never been used except by the men who brought coal, and I got out and opened this, very quietly, so as not to attract the attention of Euphemia. It was earlier than I usually returned, and she would not be expecting me. I was then about to lead the horse up a somewhat grass-grown carriageway to the front door, but I reflected that Euphemia might be looking out of some of the windows, and I had better drive up. So I got in and drove very slowly to the door. However, she heard the unaccustomed noise of wheels, and looked out of the parlor window. She did not see me, but immediately came around to the door. I hurried out of the carriage so quickly that, not being familiar with the steps, I barely escaped tripping. When she opened the front door she was surprised to see me standing by the horse. 
"'Have you hired a carriage?' she cried. "'Are we going to ride?' "'My dear,' said I, as I took her by the hand, "'we are going to ride, but I have not hired a carriage. I have bought one. Do you see this horse? He is ours, our own horse.' If you could have seen the face that was turned up to me, all you other men in the world, you would have torn your hair in despair. Afterwards she went around and around that horse, she patted his smooth sides, she looked with admiration at his strong, well-formed legs, she stroked his head, she smoothed his mane, she was brimful of joy. When I had brought the horse some water in a bucket, and what a pleasure it was to water one's own horse, Euphemia rushed into the house and got her hat and cloak, and we took a little drive. I doubt if any horse ever drew two happier people. Euphemia said but little about the carriage. That was a necessary adjunct, and it was good enough for the present. But the horse! How nobly and with what vigor he pulled us up the hills, and how carefully and strongly he held the carriage back as we went down! How easily he trotted over the level road, caring nothing for the ten miles he had gone that afternoon! What a sensation of power it gave us to think that all that strength and speed and endurance was ours, that it would go where we wished, that it would wait for us as long as we chose, that it was at our service day and night, that it was a horse and we owned it. When we returned, Pomona saw us drive in, she had not known of our ride, and when she heard the news she was as wild with proud delight as anybody. She wanted to unharness him, but this I could not allow. We did not wish to be selfish, but after she had seen and heard what we thought was enough for her, we were obliged to send her back to the kitchen for the sake of the dinner. Then we unharnessed him. I say we, for Euphemia stood by, and I explained everything, for some days, she said, she might want to do it herself. Then I led him into the stable. How nobly he trod, and how finely his hoof sounded on the stable floor. There was hay in the mow, and I had brought a bag of oats under the seat of the carriage. "'Isn't it just wonderful,' said Euphemia, "'that we haven't any man? "'If we had a man he would take the horse at the door, "'and we should be deprived of all this. "'It wouldn't be half like owning a horse.' "'In the morning I drove down to the station, "'Euphemia by my side. "'She drove back, and old John came up "'and attended to the horse. "'This he was to do, for the present, for a small stipend. "'In the afternoon Euphemia came down after me. "'How I enjoyed those rides!' Before this I had thought it ever so much more pleasant and healthful to walk to and from the station than to ride, but then I did not own a horse. At night I attended to everything, Euphemia generally following me about the stable with a lantern. When the days grew longer we would have delightful rides after dinner, and even now we planned to have early breakfasts and go to the station by the longest possible way. One day in the following spring I was riding home from the station with Euphemia, we seldom took pleasure drives now, we were so busy on the place, and as we reached the place I heard the dog barking savagely. He was loose in the little orchard by the side of the house. As I drove in, Pomona came running to the carriage. "'Man, up the tree!' she shouted. I helped Euphemia out, left the horse standing by the door, and ran to the dog, followed by my wife and Pomona. Sure enough there was a man up the tree, and Lord Edward was doing his best to get at him, springing wildly at the tree and fairly shaking with rage. I looked up at the man. He was a thoroughbred tramp, burly, dirty, generally unkempt, but unlike most tramps he looked very much frightened. His position on a high crotch of an apple tree was not altogether comfortable, and although for the present it was safe, the fellow seemed to have a wavering faith 
in the strength of apple-tree branches, and the moment he saw me he earnestly besought me to take that dog away and let him down. I made no answer, but turning to Pomona, I asked her what all this meant. "'Why, sir, you see,' said she, "'I was in the kitchen bacon pies, and this fellow must have got over the fence at the side of the house, for the dog didn't see him, and the first thing I knowed he was sticking his head in the window, and he asked me to give him something to eat. And when I said I'd see in a minute if there was anything for him, he says to me, "'Give me a piece of one of them pies. Pies I'd just baked and was settin' to cool on the kitchen table.' "'No, sir,' says I, "'I'm not going to cut one of them pies for you, or any one like you.' "'All right,' says he, "'I'll come in and help myself.' He must have known there was no man about, and comin' the way he did he hadn't seen the dog. So he come round to the kitchen door, but I shot out before he got there and unchained Lord Edward. I guess he saw the dog when he got to the door, and at any rate he heard the chain clankin' and he didn't go in, but just put for the gate.' but Lord Edward was after him so quick that he hadn't no time to get to no gates. It was all he could do to scoot up this tree, and if he'd been a millionth part of a minute later he'd have been in another world by this time. The man, who had not attempted to interrupt Pomona's speech, now began again to implore me to let him down, while Euphemia looked pitifully at him, and was about, I think, to intercede with me in his favor, but my attention was drawn off from her by the strange conduct of the dog. Believing, I suppose, that he might leave the tramp for a moment, now that I had arrived, he had dashed away to another tree, where he was barking furiously, standing on his hind legs and clawing at the trunk. "'What's the matter over there?' I asked. "'Oh, that's the other fellow,' said Pomona. "'He's no harm.' And then, as the tramp made a movement as if he would try to come down and make a rush for safety, during the absence of the dog, she called out, "'Here, boy! Here, boy!' and in an instant Lord Edward was again raging at his post at the foot of the apple-tree. I was grievously puzzled at all this, and walked over to the other tree, followed, as before, by Euphemia and Pomona. "'This one,' said the latter, "'is a tree-man.' "'I should think so,' said I, as I caught sight of a person in grey trousers standing among the branches of a cherry-tree not very far from the kitchen-door. The tree was not a large one, and the branches were not strong enough to allow him to sit down on them although they supported him well enough, as he stood close to the trunk, just out of reach of Lord Edward. "'This is a very unpleasant position, sir,' said he, when I reached the tree. "'I simply came into your yard on a matter of business, and finding that raging beast attacking a person in a tree, I had barely time to get up into this tree myself, before he dashed at me. Luckily I was out of his reach, but I very much fear I have lost some of my property.' "'No, he hasn't,' said Pomona. "'It was a big book he dropped.' I picked it up and took it into the house. It's full of pictures of pears and peaches and flowers. I've been looking at it. That's how I knew what he was. And there was no call for his getting up a tree. Lord Edward would never have gone after him if he hadn't run as if he had guilt on his soul. I suppose, then, said I, addressing the individual in the cherry tree, that you came here to sell me some trees. Yes, sir, said he quickly. Trees, shrubs, vines, evergreens, everything suitable for a gentleman's country villa. I can sell you something quite remarkable, sir, in the way of cherry-trees, French ones just imported, bear fruit three times the size of anything that could be produced on a tree like this, and pears, fruit of the finest flavor and enormous size. Yes, said Pomona, I seen them in the book, but they must grow on a ground-vine. No tree couldn't hold such pears as them. Here Euphemia reproved Pomona's forwardness, and I invited the tree-agent to get down out of the tree. "'Thank you,' said he, "'but not while that dog is loose. 
If you will kindly chain him up, I will get my book, and show you specimens of some of the finest small fruit in the world, all imported from the first nurseries of Europe, the red-gold amber musket grape, the— Oh, please let him down, said Euphemia, her eyes beginning to sparkle. End of section 23